Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is November 27th, 2015. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet, we have Doug, Erica, and Gabby, and we are uh, missing uh, Tiffany and uh, Elliot today, so we wish them well. Hope they're doing well wherever they are. Um, so today is the infamous uh, Black Friday, which is a new thing. So I, I hope that uh, everybody stayed away from the stores this morning. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, today our topic is going to be frankenfoods. We're talking about GMOs in our food chain. Um, so we have the latest news on the genetically modified foods front is the FDA approval of the GMO salmon in the U.S., or also known as frankenfish. Uh this marks the first genetically modified animal food to be approved for entry into our food chain. And its approval in other countries is anticipated to follow, despite widespread public outcry. So today we're going to be talking about that and also other uh, Franken-foods, um, covering a, a pretty wide range of topics. Um, so before we get into the, uh, the meat of the topic, though, so to speak, no pun intended, <laughs> let us... Uh, Let's do some connecting the dots here. And Erica, do you want to start us off uh, with this article that you had? Yeah. So um, last week on the 19th of November, uh, there was an article that came out that was interesting, um, Breaking Big Pharma, Doctors Call for an Immediate Drug Advertising Ban. And basically, according to major U.S. doctor group, the AMA, drug companies should stop advertising to consumers directly. Doctors are claiming that ads push patients to pursue expensive treatments and inflate demands for extra therapies. So the AMA met in Atlanta, and basically the doctors are calling for this ban in magazine and TV ads. This vote reflects concerns among physicians about the negative impact of commercially driven promotions. Um, the role in marketing costs um, play into fueling established, uh, escalating drug prices, and we saw that over the last couple of months with the significant hike in drugs. And um, basically, consumer ads are illegal in every country but the United States and New Zealand. And this use of uh, ads to sell drugs is on the rise. Big Pharma spent $4.54 billion, with a B, in 2014, and they're estimated that that's going to go up another 21%. This uh, Or the previous year was 21% higher, and then it's going to keep going up. So basically, drug manufacturers claim that the ads help patients learn more about treatment options, and it's interesting because the FDA conducted its own study on what they call direct-to-consumer ads. Forty-two percent of respondents agreed strongly or somewhat agreed that the direct-to-consumer ads make it seem as though the drugs will work for almost everyone and for anything. And it's, it's pretty concerning. I mean, we've talked about it in the past about 
I think even in a past show we played an actual drug ad, you know, when you're watching TV or you look through magazines and, you know, you have this restless leg syndrome and then they read you the 200 side effects that that may come (laughs) as a result. And um, I found the article pretty shocking that actually doctors were the ones that were calling for this because... Um, we've covered in the past this whole doctor big pharma connection and how they get kickbacks and free lunches and for kind of being the the peddlers of these controversial pharma drugs. But um, it obviously is becoming a problem. One of the things in the article said that uh, people see these drug ads and they go to the doctor and they basically want this drug and maybe the doctor has a conscience and is like, well, you know, I don't know if this is the drug for you. And it becomes kind of this back and forth where the patient is really pressuring the doctor to give them this drug. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It will be good to see how this plays out, whether Big Pharma will step in and and kind of squash it or if, Mm -hmm. you know, these concerned doctors will actually um, get some headway on this. For our listeners, if there's anyone that's interested more in the history of direct-to-consumer advertising, there's a book called Generation RX by Craig Christer, and he basically, um, you know, goes through the history of drug companies raising the fear of disease to sell unnecessary pills and again, corrupt the doctor-to-patient relationship. And he says and uh, that's exactly what has happened, and Big Pharma is lamenting all the way to the bank. So you guys have any uh, insights on that? or A question about the article. You said that, okay, drug advertisement is legal in the U.S., only in the U.S.? Yes, and, and New Zealand. New Zealand. Well, that is interesting because there is a lot of drug advertisement here in Spain as well, you know. And I've been watching even Russian TV, and I see a lot of advertising there from European pharmaceutical companies and their drugs. They're advertising their products in ads, you know, in Russian TV. So I thought that, wow, (laughs) this is a worldwide problem, isn't it? So I I was surprised to read that. Oh, it is illegal, actually. So, what is happening? Huh. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I wonder if there's some kind of loophole that they're working within there. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty crazy. It reminds me of that comedian. Uh, I think he's a British, but his his TV show is in the U.S. Who did a show on advertisements? Uh, drug advertisement for doctors and patients, you know, how pharma was sold out. And it was very popular. Like, it, it is like a subject in the awareness of the public in general, but it is true. Like, you will find people that will seek doctors, they will seek you, and they will ask for a specific drug they saw in an ad because they think that's the solution for the problems. It's just like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's think John that's Oliver's that. show you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great segment. Yeah. Yeah. I just find it really funny how the uh, you know the advertising that you see it's so manipulative. Like to me, it just seems so over the top. You know, it's like all these like images of like shiny, happy people in their life, like running through fields and blowing bubbles and like you know 
playing around in 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 these idyllic kind of uh, nature surroundings and stuff. And to me, it just seems so obvious and so manipulative. And but I mean, obviously, it works, which is always like you know so disturbing on that level. Like to me, I, I see those things and just all, like red flags and alarm bells are going off. Like how could anybody fall for this? You know, especially when they miss off the ridiculous number of side effects and possible uh, complications and things like that. It's it just like, I can't believe that, that, that people are kind of like, after watching that, they're like, yes, I'm going to my doctor and I'm going, I'm going to ask for this. It just, it blows my mind. Yeah. You no, know, it seems like a true drug ad should actually look more like the movie Requiem for a Dream. And it would be yeah. all like dark and extremely disturbing. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's scary yeah. too because like most people are not on just one of those drugs so then you you're on two or three different ones and then you have like the 15 combination of side effects and how do you know if one drug isn't causing the other thing that you're taking the drug for and and it's like a downward spiral well it's unbelievable that a side effect from one drug they then turn around and try to treat with another drug it's just insane Yeah, that's, most that's trials, yeah. No, it's like most clinical trials just test one drug at a time versus placebo and, you know, the real trial is like in the general population when they decide to take like eight things, eight different things and let's see what mm-hmm. happens, right? Yeah, yeah, don't they call that the cocktail effect? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. It is crazy. Well, and pretty soon I they'll come out with a drug that will that will um, be specifically for side effects. <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine that it's 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 got to be. Uh, I mean, I guess I've, I've honestly never heard of any doctors doing this, but trying to test for interactions, you know, down the line, where say somebody is taking five pharmaceuticals already and they're going to prescribe a new one, you know, with the unique kind of uh, internal environment that every person has with that combined with the drugs that they're taking and how they interact and how they don't really know about that. Like how could you even determine how a new one would interact? And yet, you know, as we see, um, it's kind of going off the chain where people are taking five, even up to 10 different pharmaceuticals at the same time. So, well, disturbing as that is, let us uh, go on in our connecting the dots here. Um, Gabby, do you want to tell us about this uh, the McDonald's lawsuit? Yes, this we love McDonald's. <laughs> it's a class action lawsuit filed against McDonald's because a thousand customers were exposed to hepatitis A. Um, it's happening in New York. An employee at McDonald's location in Waterloo, New York, was diagnosed with hepatitis A. And the branch, uh, the branch owner um, is being sued by a customer for potentially exposing people to the virus, which causes liver infection. Um, so this customer filed the lawsuit on November 18th and could potentially impact more than a 1,000 customers. 
and um, they advised customers who went to the Waterloo McDonald's restaurant on November 2, 3, 5, 6, and 8 to look at treatment if they haven't been vaccinated against hepatitis A. So, yes, this happened um, so this month, and this goes to show, you know, the little controls they have with their employees, the diseases they carry, how many people can get exposed to a virus, you know, like hepatitis A, which is more mostly associated uh, as a disease of poor countries. But yes, it happened uh, in New York this month. And uh, I thought that was interesting in that respect, you know, not even in countries like, you know, Costa Rica or, you know, or poor regions, you know, I've been like exposed to hepatitis A, but then you go in the heart of the United States, they got exposed just by visiting McDonald's. So what do you guys think about it? Well, it was interesting in the article how they added that you could get, of course, a vaccination. Yeah, there is vaccination. Yeah. So, so maybe you need to get a vaccination before you eat at McDonald's and then take those five prescription drugs for heartburn. And uh... <laughs> So they could just yeah, set up a little vaccination booth. Fats and the GMOs and <laughs> hormones that you find in their beef and... All that kind of stuff. Do they have a vaccine for that yet? It's coming. Uh, it's coming. They're probably working it out. That's your solution for everything. Well, just get the vaccine. We're sorry, you know, this happened, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I've never really understood. Like yeah. how does the vaccine help after the fact? Because there was actually an issue at the place I work um, where there was a, a hepatitis A scare. One of the employees ended up having it, and um, th there was no issue. It didn't end up getting spread on or anything like that, but everybody was all freaked out, and they set up a, a kind of a pop-up clinic where people who were concerned that they might have gotten exposed could go and get the vaccine. But I, my, I don't understand how a vaccine would help after the fact. You know, once you're already yeah. exposed to the virus, like, what, how, do, how does a vaccine help? Like, is this just, like, kind of, like, placating people and say, oh, no, no, don't worry, you can get the vaccine and everything will be fine. Like, I, it, it doesn't make any sense to me that the vaccine would work after. Yeah. Well, it doesn't to me either, you know. There is, like, some potential immunity, but it's not called vaccine, you know. It's more like an immunogenic factor, so to speak. But... Mm. I don't know if it really works, if it's really worth it with all these vaccination additives. It's uh, mm. it's one of those vaccines that, I don't know, it's recommended for health care providers, like high-risk personnel. And mm. they offer it to me, for example, I do not consent, you know. <laughs> and, um but, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I think it's just to placate people's fears. Oh, I got exposed to hepatitis A. That could, like, kill my liver, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Like, on the other hand, the for me, it was like, yes, there we go. Oh, I was going to say, I think the takeaway is uh, don't eat at McDonald's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was going to be my point, you know. It was, how did they find out this person had hepatitis A? For all you know, you know, 
some of the personnel has hepatitis B, C, you know, be more concerned about mm-hmm. the C than any other, you know. <laughs> and yeah. it's like the least of our concerns, so to speak. <laughs> it's very rare, you know. I think GMO exposure, the E. coli, the salmonella, that's like worse, much more common. Much more common. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder if we're seeing the uh, the kind of um, the fall of the behemoth here with the issues that McDonald's is having. I know their market share has been falling for some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there were protests going on outside of McDonald's, too. I, I think it was last week with uh, their workers uh, protesting against their low wages. Um, trying to get uh, increased wages and things like that. And, you know, McDonald's definitely seems to be kind of uh, taking a lot of hits on a lot of fronts right now. I wonder if it could be more like a convenient scapegoat because then people will be more like, oh, justice is being done. All the while there is all these E. coli problems in normal food, supermarket food, on normal Mm -hmm. restaurant chains and, you know. It's like yeah. the whole food industry is the problem. It's not only McDonald's, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's a good yeah, that's point. That's a good point. Yeah. It could just be a scapegoat, but, uh, you know, everybody will go to Burger King instead. <laughs> right, yeah. Or just like, Gabby, like you said, just keep getting the, um, you know, the processed foods out of the grocery store because they're still obviously widely available. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because McDonald's, you know, um, you never see their trucks on the road during the day. Uh, It's always at night, and, you know, there's these big semis that that have, you know, their logo on the side or whatnot, but I noticed um, that uh, you would never see them during the day, so it was, like, out of people's consciousness that the food is not even made there, that it's basically just Mm -hmm. trucked in, all prepackaged and everything. So it's like, where is it coming from, and where's that mysterious plant where it's all created? (laughs) You know, that's a good point. Everything is pristine and clean, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It probably is a corporate strategy to ship at night. It's a good observation. Well, let's see. Let's let's move on a little bit here. Uh, we have a couple other articles before we get into our topic for today, um, or one more, actually. Uh, Doug, do you want to do EMF hypersensitivity? Yeah. So uh, this was uh, posted on SOT on the 20th of November, originally published in the Activist Post by Catherine J. Frompovich, uh, called EMF hypersensitivity, sorry, EMF hypersensitivity has finally been medically proven. Uh, very interesting article. Uh, it talks about um, a study um, and called Metabolic and Genetic Screening of Electro- Electromagnetic Hypersensitivity Subjects as a fe- Feasible Tool for Diagnostic and Intervention. Um, and basically, you know, the, the article is kind of complicated, but uh, it, what it basically shows is that what they t- did is took um, uh, a, like self-reported electro-hypersensitivity subjects um, and compare them against people who have multiple chemical sensitivities but don't um, have any electrosensitivity, um, or like all from self-report, obviously. And they did some tests on them and kind of compared the two and found that there were actual differences in certain markers 
particularly for uh, different antioxidant markers, particularly um, glutathione um, and a couple of other ones as well. They also found that there was a difference. I found this very interesting. Very, uh, there was a difference between the omega-6 and omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid ratios between the two groups. Um, so the implications of this, although it is kind of complex and stuff, what they're basically showing is that there is actually a physical difference between people who are um, electrohypersensitive, um, which is very interesting, and it you know it obviously um, kind of legitimizes the the condition because there's a lot of issues right now with uh, a lot of people basically claiming that it's all in people's heads, it doesn't actually exist. Um, despite the fact that the World Health Organization actually said that it does exist back in 2005. Um, and they said, you know, basically that there are non-specified symptoms that people suffer from and that, but that's, it, it's actually a very real thing. Nonetheless, um, a lot of doctors don't recognize it. And of course, it hasn't affected the, uh, the industry, like cell phones, Wi-Fi, all that kind of stuff. It hasn't it, it affected that industry whatsoever. Like they're not taking any um, steps to protect consumers in any way. Um, the one thing I found that might be kind of negative from this is that, you know, if you've got these markers that kind of show um, a, a, a possible causative reason for these electrohypersensitive individuals, it kind of delegitimizes the idea that it's harmful to everybody. It's kind of like uh, a way of kind of pacifying the rest of the public going, oh, you know, these these people have these um, um, these reasons that they're having these kind of sensitivities to the to to um, electromagnetic radiation, um, but the rest of us are fine. You know, it's the same. I, I you know you could draw a, a parallel to uh, gluten and gluten sensitivity and stuff. You know, uh, where people are kind of like, well, if you have celiac disease, then gluten's bad, but otherwise it's completely harmless. And you know, we know differently, and there's been lots of evidence to show that this is not the case. I think the same thing applies to um, electrohypersensitive individuals that rather than them being an anomaly, they're kind of more like the canary in the coal mine. You know, these people are showing that this stuff has a very real physical effect on us, um, and they just happen to be more sensitive to it um, than the rest of us are, whereas the rest of us is just kind of this silent killer in the background that's kind of like, um, you, know, you know, just kind of like uh, hacking away at our health in a in a more um, uh, invisible manner. So um, while I think it is positive that they've they've kind of done this study and said, yeah, you know, this is a very real thing. There are actually physical reasons behind this. Um, I think we have to be careful here, um, or else it could be just like another um, excuse that uh, we can um, ignore these problems around us. Yeah, that's a good point for sure. I've never known any uh, elect electrically hypersensitive people. Have you guys? I definitely feel like I am hypersensitive to mm. the I, For me, it's more of a vertigo kind of thing, like a headache mm. or like almost like a, a scrambling of your brain, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, especially since I didn't live around a lot of electromagnetic energy. And then I think one time I went to Times Square in New York City and I got vertigo so bad that um, mm -hmm. I had to go lay down. It was it was just really, I'd never experienced anything like that before. It was almost like a, a bombardment on, on a mental level. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
I recently moved. I was living near a um, cell tower, like next mm. to it. Uh, I was almost uh, like an ear, and um, there were other factors as well, like uh, job-related factors, but yet my health got progressively worse. And I decided to move. I was looking forward to it. I went to a small town very far away. And yes, I definitely could feel I could rest better, concentrate better. And yes, of course, I did several other things uh, related to health protocols and so forth. But I think, yes, I'm sensitive as well. I wear my Q-Link. We spoke about it in uh, mm. another show. Well, at least... Uh, a little gadget that's supposed to protect you uh, from electromagnetic waves. And I do feel like it does a little bit of difference. So I don't know if it's my imagination or not. Like this is such a difficult subject, like to study research because it's really like invisible waves, you know, and uh, like uh, I was explaining the other show, like um, it is difficult to do re very objective research in this respect, but there is like data, at least indirect data, that does suggest that yes, it could really screw your health. Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, I work in um, a health food store, so I get uh, like you know customers coming in um, fairly frequently. Um, well, I, sh I shouldn't say fairly frequently, but you know it it, it, it certainly happens. Um, who are kind of um, electromagnetically hypersensitive. Um, and, you know, I really do feel for them because they are kind of, uh, in a lot of, a lot of instances, they are kind of quirky individuals. And I think that that's probably uh, um, a result of being so sensitive um, and, you know, being bombarded by these things all the time, but they kind of get this, uh, this, uh, you know, paranoia about them and, um uh, can ha have kind of these uh, these quirky type personalities. So I, I can I, I really feel for them because I think that that because of that um, they're less likely to be taken seriously and kind of be uh, you know put in the category of of uh, you know kind of freaks or, or quacks or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But you know it, it, I, I I'm thinking of one person in in particular who took very um, stringent steps to kind of. Uh, stop being exposed um to these sorts of things and and improved like quite a bit um so you know you could just say oh well it's just placebo and you know they were it was all in their head but but i don't think so you know i i, I really think that uh that that this person um improved because of very real um physical um you know reasons mm -hmm. i should mention actually the, uh we did a couple of shows with uh, larry bowers um, talking all about uh, EMFs and uh, went into a lot of details on that. And I encourage listeners to, if you haven't heard it, go back and uh, and listen to those shows. They were actually very, very enlightening and, and, and really good shows. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's also a series of articles in the uh, SOT archives that Larry mm -hmm. wrote going into all the technical aspects, not just cell phones, but even electricity in your home and using a cell phone in the car and so it's not just one, you know, wave, essentially. We're being completely bombarded on numerous fronts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to echo what uh, Doug said as well. That show with Larry was really great. Um, yeah. A lot of useful information for people there. 
I guess let's uh, let's get into our topic for today. We're going to be talking about Frankenfoods um, of all types, and uh, it, I think it's a it's a pretty fascinating topic, uh, just in the sense that uh, there is some activism around this, um, but not a lot uh, that I've seen. Yeah. Um, I, I think in general, uh, people have become much more apathetic. Well, I mean, we can see that people have become kind of apathetic about what they eat, but the uh, the genetic modification issue uh, has has not been very huge um, when I think it should be. You know, there's a lot of unknowns here, and there are knowns as well as about the negative effects uh, that genetic modification can have on our bodies, uh, on the food chain, on the species that are being modified, uh, whether they're plants or animals. Um, mm-hmm. So... I'll just uh, I'll start us off here with this uh, this article. Um, the FDA finally approves Frankenfish, the first genetically modified animal that you can eat, uh, which again I think is a little bit disingenuous because it's been around for some time. Um, but this mm-hmm. is the first one that has you know public kind of government open approval. So I'll just read this article because it's fairly short here. Um, a fast-growing salmon has become the first genetically modified species in the world to be approved for human consumption, and it will not have to be labeled as GM food. Uh, The U.S. Food and Drug Administration yesterday ended 20 years of torturous negotiations by approving the GM Atlantic salmon, which grows twice as fast as ordinary salmon and can be grown in fish tanks in warehouses on land. FDA approval in the U.S. raises the prospect that the GM salmon could also eventually be approved in other parts of the world, including Europe, despite fierce public opposition to GM foods there. The so-called Frankenfish has been bitterly opposed by a coalition of more than 20 anti-GM organizations, but their attempts to prevent it from reaching American supermarkets and eventually the global market appear now to have failed. The GM Atlantic salmon is engineered with extra hormone genes from the Pacific Chinook salmon and a promoter, quote-unquote, gene uh, from an eel-like species called the ocean pout. These extra genes boost the salmon's growth all year round instead of seasonally, uh, cutting the time in half that it takes to reach maturity. Its inventors at a Massachusetts company called Aqua Bounty Technologies argue that the salmon can be grown nearer to consumer markets than the Atlantic salmon reared in remote coastal fish farms. However, the salmon detractors have claimed that the approval sets a dangerous precedent by sanctioning the introduction of genetically modified animals into the human food chain. So... What do you guys think? I mean, I think there's a whole bunch wrong with that just on, I mean, at a very basic level, like, I get, you know, efficiency in food production, but you don't need to bring a very specific species of fish closer to my grocery store. Uh, you know, on, on just a basic level, like, um, but, if you know, of course, there's a bunch of other issues with that than just being lazy. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, that's a fallacious argument right there anyway, that they can grow it closer to, um, you know, consumer markets because the the eggs are being um, grown in uh, in Canada um, on the East Coast. I think it's Nova Scotia. And then they're being flown all the way to Panama for the fish to actually be grown. And then it goes to consumers from there. So the idea that this is, oh, it's, we can do it closer to to actual markets. I mean, give me a break. That's how how like how much further is that than just uh, you know fishing for salmon on the coast and, and shipping in land? Like it, it just that's that's a terrible argument. 
Well, and it's yep. also been in the works for almost 20 years. You know, I mean, Aqua Bounty or Aqua Advantage, there seems to be kind of a, I don't know if they're two different corporations. Um, I know after uh, the release of this information, I think it was on the 19th of November that, you know, it kind of quietly came out. Uh, there was an article in Reuters about it. Mm. Uh, Aqua Bounty is... Um, owned by the Interexon Corporation, and with the release of this information, their shares went up 6.4%, you know, and um, in this article, it's actually called Frankenfish Alert, Genetically Modified Salmon Cleared for Human Consumption by the FDA. And just like what Jonathan said, you know, they mix these two fish and uh, they come up with this Frankenfish, which seems to be the best description of it, but... The surprising thing in the article was all the people, scientists, that were really in favor of it. Like, this is a great mm. thing. So one of them was this Dr. Hallerman. He's like a fish conservationist uh, professor at Virginia Tech University. And he said this approval is significant because it makes uh, the, the first approved globally for production of GMO animals. And... Um, Claims are that Aqua Advantage salmon are no different from these, uh, you know, commercially production produced salmon, and um, this is a fight we've been having for 20 years, you know. And uh, mentioning that thing that you said, Jonathan, about the promoter gene, and maybe we'll get into this more later in the show. But this was the issue with GMO crops years ago was that these promoter genes that they modify these animals and vegetables and grains with basically turns on and off genes in the body and they don't really know the long-term effects of that so it could turn on an allergy gene it could turn off another gene and it's just really mad science in so many ways it is as far as i'm aware Okay, we did a podcast about Frankenfish years ago. I don't know which mm-hmm. year, but we spoke about it first back then. And then for me, it feels like this subject was deliberately silenced, like out of public awareness, and now they come out and say, we have it, it's ready to go. Like, yeah. the public was never consulted. It's like, there's like, it feels like there are several things that could go very wrong with this. Why was mm-hmm. not you know, anybody consulted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the, it's the pretty... interesting thing is is that, you know, again, this Aqua Advantage or Aqua Bounty or whoever they're, you know, kind of skewing the waters is that this fish is um, sterile. And it's, you know, they say that the env- environmental impacts wouldn't be bad because you've got this sterile fish. They're only making female frankenfish. They grow twice as fast in half the time. And, um, you know, there's just all these other scary things associated with it. Like it's got 40% more of the uh, IGF-1 hormone that's linked to prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer. Um, It's actually less nutritious, so it's got lower omega-3 to 6 ratios than all salmon, and that was claimed by the FDA. 
it's got those allergenic potentials, so like 20 to 52% higher than normal salmon. And um, the FDA also notes that evidence of increased frequency of skeletal malformations, jaw erosions, uh, focal inflammation in the GMO salmon tissues. So basically it's like one messed up fish, you know. And as with GMO crops, you know, there is always cross-contamination. What will happen? This is grown in Panama, you said, in Central America? Mm -hmm. Why they don't grow it in the United States or in Canada? I mean, they are wary or what? (laughs) (laughs) Do they think that they're going to be safe enough if it grows down there in Central America, you know? I don't know. It sounds so wrong. Yeah. I think it's pretty typical, you know, all this stuff is pretty typical of, of these GMO companies doing this. And just, just to clarify, um, Aqua, Aqua Bounty is the name of the corporation. The Aqua, Aqua Advantage is the name of the salmon. They like the, tra- the trademarked GMO salmon. Um, okay, so it's all just okay. one corporation. Yeah. But they, like, it's, it's all pretty typical that they're doing this all, you know, behind closed doors and being very sneaky about it. And, you know, they don't have to, um, you know, get approval from uh, Canada to grow the fish there because they're only growing the eggs. And then uh, they don't have to do um, get any kind of approval from the states where it hadn't previously been approved yet um, because they flew it all the way down to Panama where maybe there's like looser regulations on that sort of thing. And it's all done behind closed doors, all done out of the public eye um, to avoid any kind of public discourse on it, to avoid getting any kind of um, you know, negative press on it, which would undoubtedly happen. I mean, they're even even doing the things they've been doing, um, there still has been a significant amount of negative press on it, at least in the alternative press. So, uh, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at all. It's all sneaky, backhanded kind of stuff to get. And, you know, it all gets rushed through the approval process, too. I mean, there has been very, very little testing on this uh, salmon, uh, safety testing. I mean, they haven't done any kind of like feeding it to, uh, to animals or anything like that to see what, uh, what, what kind of negative effects there are, if any, um, which undoubtedly there would be. Uh, they only tested a few fish, um, not, uh, you know, they didn't do extensive studies on it. Um, so they kind of tested a few fish and said, yeah, okay, it's safe. No, no problem. We can, we can do this. And, you know, the FDI kind of said, yeah, okay, that looks good. So it, it just, it's so obvious that there's this like, you know, backdoor dealings, and and it's just been completely rushed through without any kind of real safety oversight. Related to what you just said, I want to remind listeners that it's just like the vaccine, you know, the HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, We spoke about it in in the previous show. Basically, scholars demonstrated that studies done in Costa Rica specifically, but in South America, to speed up the process of approval by the FDA because the FDA doesn't control what happens in South America, but they can still approve studies done there. And scholars have demonstrated that it's actually human rights violation, very unethical studies, you know, adverse effects are, you know, hidden away, not reported, discouraged. It's just just the same thing all over again, but with GMO foods. And Mm -hmm. uh, we know what happened with the HPV vaccine basically the most dangerous vaccine out there nowadays, you know, with thousands of thousands of adverse effects, people get, and, you know, the same thing, but with something as basic as, you know, salmon fish, you know, part of our, you know, daily eating, you know, basically. It's just, yeah. This is just so 
wrong, you know, that this is actually happening. I cannot, well, I can believe it, but. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a couple of things that stand out for me here. Um, one is I, I remember when uh, farm-raised salmon started to be a thing, you know, and years ago uh, you only saw salmon in the store once in a while, uh, and it was usually wild-caught, at least where I live. Um you know, but then, you know, there was more and more farm-raised salmon. And now, I mean, I, I don't even know if you can find wild-caught salmon unless you go to, like, a five-star restaurant. Um, so, but there were problems with that before, you know, with the farm-raised salmon, even even when they were not genetically modified, because in those situations, they're much more susceptible to disease. Um, and those, you know, diseases, cancers and things like that can be carried uh, in the fish, you know, all the way to the uh, to the grocery store. So adding genetic modification on top of the uh, farm raising situation seems like it would introduce a whole set of unknown variables. Um, yeah. And I guess the the other thing that this makes me think of is, you know, they, they keep talking about efficiency in food production. Uh, you know, you get a bigger fish, so you get more meat. So, yeah, on the on the face of it, you know, I guess that makes sense if you only look at that aspect. However... Um, Americans specifically are still throwing away like 40% of the food uh, that we eat generally, um, Mm -hmm. which is a staggering number. And there's all these problems with hunger all over the planet and in the United States itself as well. Um, And yet, you know, people are are eating a little over half of what's on their plate and throwing away the rest. Like that should Mm -hmm. be addressed, you know, before we address these more efficient ways to make food with science, I guess, um, it's just my personal opinion on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very convenient thing for them to be able to claim, and we see this with uh, GM crops and, and all these kinds of things. You know, It's like, oh, we can feed the world this way. We can end world hunger, which, you know, it's it's just been shown time and again that this is not the way to approach this problem. And, uh, you know, it, it, there isn't an issue with food production. You know, it's not that there isn't enough food being produced. It's the distribution issues. So, you know, that it's, I, I think that this is just a convenient way for them to kind of make an excuse to produce these things. And, you know, if, that, that's just a narrative, right? Like, that's, that's what they, uh, they can say to the public. They can put in all their PR and, uh, and, and an excuse to, to, uh, of why they pursue these things. When realistically, it, it all comes down to money. You know, they, by, by making these um, aqua advantage salmon, um, they are in effect, controlling part of the food chain. And, you know, it'll get to the point, no doubt, where, you know, they have a patent on, you know, every different kind of thing, element that's coming onto your plate. So it it really is just about that um, instituting this kind of control over um, uh, what everybody is eating. Uh, It has nothing to do with feeding the world, you know. It has nothing to do with any of these kind of... um, uh, you know, selfless ideas that they promote in all their PR. It really is just about money. And the fish is patented, you know, a living life form with patent. Yeah. And we see that with yep. the, the rising of the shares, you know. One thing that's interesting about this whole thing in the U.S. is this um, ongoing debate happening about uh, what they call the Dark Act or the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act, but they also call it the Dark Act because it's the denial of Americans' right to know. 
and uh, we talked about this in a previous show, but basically the bill was floated through Congress, uh, 275 to 150, and, you know, there's uh, ranging percentages of how many people want labeling, but I think it's like anywhere from 80 to 93%. And Mm -hmm. so as this DARK Act is, basically overrides any state and local GMO labeling laws. Um, It also regulates the the use of the term natural on food labels, which is, you know, very questionable. And basically the legislation preempts any state and local restrictions for labeling requirements. So I found it very interesting that this was kind of, as you folks said, like passed through – not a lot of debate just kind of happened while this whole labeling law is being battled out. And, um, you know, it's almost like they wanted to get it approved before there's a, an actual labeling law. So then, you know, and you think of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and all these different things going on behind the scenes that if they approve these things, they get them through, then they're grandfathered in, and they're generally regarded as safe, right? That grass, G-R-A-S, you know, that it's, oh, it's fine. Now they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to label it. You know, there are uh, companies like Costco saying that they won't sell it, and even Red Lobster, you know, they're not going to sell it. But it's just, it seems like it's there's so many things going on underneath the surface. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very sneaky. I mean, it's already like I, I worry that this is actually going to be the end of salmon. You know what I mean? That we're actually at a place now where you can no longer trust any salmon that's being sold. And who knows, this, this might, you know, um, move over into other, um, you know, uh, meats and things like that. Um, because I, I remember I heard on the news, it was only a couple of weeks ago or something, there was this thing, and I don't know if this was just in Canada or, or if it actually had uh, uh, more of a worldwide scope, but they did a test um, on different restaurant salmons that were being sold as wild salmon, and they found something outrageous, like 80% or something like that of the wild salmon that, that were appearing on menus were actually farmed. So it's already a big issue knowing where your fish is coming from. You can't actually trust when somebody says, oh, yes, this is wild salmon. It turns out, no, this isn't wild salmon at all. It's actually uh, farmed salmon. So how much more complicated is that when it's uh, a GM salmon? You know, they can say on the uh, on the menu or on the packaging at the grocery store or something is non-GMO salmon, which, you know, they're not actually allowed to, to say at all. But, you know, if you're asking questions about where this has come from, uh, you know, you don't actually know. You have no idea. You know, if you can't even know whether it's wild or farmed, then how are you going to be able to tell that it's actually GM? You know, is there going to be any kind of physical characteristics that you can look at? Is it going to be a different color? Probably not. It's probably going to look exactly like the salmon that you get everywhere else. Maybe bigger. It'll be bigger salmon steaks or something. I don't know. But uh, I worry. I like like salmon, (laughs) you know. It's it's one of my favorite fish. And now uh, I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to eat it anymore. Yeah, no, to be sincere, I stopped eating it because I cannot find a series of wild salmon anymore, you know, reliable, mm-hmm. you know. And it just looked, like, different to me, like, from what I remember. It just doesn't look right. This fish doesn't look right. <laughs> so I just stopped yeah. eating it. And just <laughs> well, and just so our listeners know, like, farmed salmon is basically raised on GM corn and soy. So essentially it is a genetic... Salmon. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and even so that, now it's going to be yeah, it's going to be modified <laughs> and raised on GM. So it's going to be a hundred percent GM salmon. Oh, yeah. Uh, to your point there, Doug. Uh, kind of like we were talking about before the show. Um, I fish for salmon on Lake Superior, um, not in a boat. Uh, you know, it's uh, having a boat is is quite an expense. Um, but on the uh, on the river mouse, you know, when they when they come in for spawning. <clears throat> and uh, three years ago was was a good year. There were quite a few um, that that we caught myself and my friends that do the same thing. Um, the year before this year, so last year. Uh, was really, really paltry, and this year was as well. Um, and this year I didn't catch any at all. Um, I, I know a few friends that did. Um, and last year uh, I had a friend who's a really, really avid fisherman. Like, he does it way more than I do. And he caught, like, two, like, the whole season, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Usually you, you catch anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30 if you're going out all the time. So uh, a lot of, in, you know, if you talk to the anglers around the, the area where I live, they'll they'll say, yeah, you know, it looks like the salmon are, are becoming less and less in the lake. And that's just Lake Superior. You know, I don't know if that's happening in other places um, or like what the situation is in Alaska with the wild salmon. But, uh, you know, on top of, I guess it's like on top of all of the earth changes that are going on, there's changes in the magnetic field that are happening. Um, mm. You know, bird migration is getting screwed up. Obviously, we all know that there's something that's going on with the bees. Um, all these migratory uh, animals are having their normal um, natural patterns disrupted. And, like, we don't need to introduce another negative factor on top of that, you know, by leaking this um, these bad genes essentially into the, uh, into the wild food chain. Very true. So I guess uh, to the point of uh, labeling, I have this article up here, one of the articles from our notes. Uh, Grocery Manufacturers Association wants GMOs labeled as natural food. Um, This is just from last week, uh, 18th of November. It says, last week the FDA announced that it would be accepting public input on how or whether to define the term natural on food labels. Uh, this action came about as a result of a number of petitions filed by the Grocery Manufacturers Association and the Consumers Union. Uh, the GMA, which is kind of ironic, uh, asked the FDA to refine, redefine natural so that foods derived from biotechnology, uh, read GMO foods, could use the label, while Consumers Union separately filed a petition asking the FDA to prohibit the use of natural on food labels altogether since the term is vague and misleading to consumers. So I think it's kind of interesting, this, uh, you know, debate that's going on. Like, I guess in my mind it seems fairly straightforward as to what should be labeled as natural and what should not. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, the GMA spent over $4 million lobbying on this issue. And, you know, it just keeps going up. And and they have a hugely vested interest in keeping that word natural so they can put about anything in, in you know, not just GM, GMOs, but also synthetic biology and, you know, additives and preservatives, MSG, the, the whole gamut. 
Yeah. No, I think, I mean, it, people people don't really realize this, but you, you have to realize that the, 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 the term natural it doesn't mean anything. It's a marketing term. There's nothing, there's nothing more to it than that. You know, a, a company can have the most synthetic uh, food you can imagine, you know, packaged, full of processed ingredients, uh, you know, GMOs, all kinds of things like that. And they can put it in a fancy green package, put a picture of a tree on it, call it natural. Um, and it, it, there, there's no regulation there whatsoever. The term natural means absolutely nothing. So um, I actually, if I see natural written on a product, that, that's like a red flag for me. I'm kind of like, wait a minute, what does this actually mean? Take a look at the ingredients and like forget it. This is anything but natural. So, yeah, I think uh, you have to look at, at, um, at these terms. You know, the term organic means that it actually, you know, was, was grown or, or the ingredients in there um, were certified organic by some sort of certifying body. And, you know, there's issues there, of course, as well, but at least it means something, right? There is a, a, a very real um, meaning behind this, like that, that, that this falls under some kind of regulation. The term natural has nothing behind it. There's absolutely nothing there. So you, you have to kind of make a, uh, a differentiation between a marketing term and an actual uh, certification. Right. Well, and another thing yeah. that's concerning about this passing of this salmon is that uh, according to a, the activist group Friends of the Earth, there's at least 35 other species of genetically engineered fish, chicken, pigs, and cows under development. And the mm. FDA's decision on this genetically engineered salmon application actually sets a precedent, precedent for other genetically engineered fish and animals. And and as you yeah. said, Doug, the term is natural. Mm -hmm. Totally Well, I know one that they've been working on for a while is the uh, the Enviro pig, which is like, you know, talk about uh, contradictory labeling. Um, it's a genetically modified pig, and they've been working on this in Canada, actually, at the University of Guelph. Um, and it's basically they've genetically modified this pig to have less, I think it's less nitrates in the, in the feces. Um, so the idea is that they can keep up with their um, factory farming practices with these, you know, massive uh, confined feeding operations. Um, and, you know, the, the, it'll, it'll kind of mitigate a bit of the problem of the waste, you know. Um, so the, the pigs no longer are... Um, putting out tons of, of sewage that has nitrates that affects the environment negatively, um, or at least, you know, it, uh, they're trying. But, um, you know, so it's, it, it's a genetically modified pig, and you're just going to be, be eating this uh, genetic modification so that they can keep up with this harmful practice of confined feeding operations. It's, it's just it's unbelievable. Yeah, and to take it even further, just on the 12th of November, um, there was an article, Enviro Pig, New Genetically Altered Enviro Pigs Want to Go to Market. This was carried on Natural Blaze. So talking about what you were sharing, they basically scrapped that pig in 2012 oh. after consumer backlash and lack of university funding. But the vacancy, mm -hmm. vacancy uh, left um, open you know, other options. So now there are two new types of engineered pigs post for approval in their respective countries. And the author basically says now that the trans 
Pacific Partnership is out in the ocean, out in the open, excuse me, it becomes clear that the deal opens the door for a swarm of global biotech ventures that can uh, more easily glide their wares across country boundaries. So basically, the, this environmental pig is genetic splicing, and it's intended, you know, as Doug said, the first one was intended to cut down on phosphorus waste. But the two more pigs are vying for public acceptance, and um, the author says it's important to note these animals aren't transgenetic like many GMO crops. They do not contain genes from other species or kingdoms like bacteria, but biotech involves more than GMOs. Some methods um, currently fall outside of regulation or definition, and um but we're still talking about genetic engineering. And the two countries, uh, one of them is Bruce Whitelaw and his colleagues at the University of Edinburgh are developing a pig resistant to the African swine fever. And then the other one is um, Jinsu Kim and colleagues at Seoul National University have developed a double-muscled pig that produces twice as much muscle as a regular pig, resulting in higher protein and, get this, lower pork fat. So huh. both both cases, the researchers have precisely targeted an individual pig gene to create a mutation that turns up or turns down certain genes. Hmm. So, yeah, scary stuff. Um, yeah, for sure. And I guess they're going to try wonder. and get. Sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, no, I was just going to say it makes me wonder. You know, have they done any testing on the uh, on the state uh, or the health of these animals that are engineered? You know, like the the animals are already suffering enough in these factory farms. I mean, not enough. They shouldn't be suffering that much. Is what I mean to say. Um, the factory farms are really an awful condition for the animal, and we've discussed this on the show before. But if you are going to slaughter an animal to eat, I mean, it's really the very least that you can do to give it a uh, happy, healthy life before it's brought to slaughter, you know, and um, I just wonder if, you know, the genetically modified animals are not going to have conditions that cause them to basically live their short lives in pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. It's just more bad karma, I guess. Yeah, well, we see that actually with the salmon. Um, I mean, uh, Erica was just talking before about all the, the issues that the, that the salmon have, like the, um, what was it, skeletal deformations, Erica? Yeah. Yeah, skeletal malformations, increased prevalence of jaw erosion, and multisystemic focal inflammation. So we already can see that, that these, uh, these genetically modified animals are, are, you know, hindered with all these kind of uh, health issues that don't exist in, in you know, normal, um, naturally raised um, uh, animals. So, I mean, and, and I, you know, if you're, you're, you're tweaking the genetics of a pig to grow twice as much muscle than it normally does, it, there, there's got to be health consequences to that. You know, I, I can't see that the pig would be uh, happy and healthy. You know, it, it's just ridiculous. Especially when we have less fat, which is so important for health. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. It's like a huge nightmare. It's just basically inflammatory animals, inflammatory food, which are low in fat. 
I mean, you yeah. can't get much worse than that. Well, it can. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't tempt fate, there, Gabby. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes well, and I all wonder this... how long it. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go yeah. on. Oh, I was just going to say all this, you know, <clears throat> idea that they're going to address problems with traditional breeding and you know. Um, and paving the way for, you know, like they're, they've genetically modified goats so that their milk doesn't spoil easily in warm weather. And they're intended for poor countries where refrigeration and pasteurization are scarce. And another one is they've uh, created a hornless cattle for less ouch wrangling for cattle ranchers. I mean, it's just complete insanity. I, I wonder how long it's going to be before we see kind of like in the some sci-fi movies you see you know they they take a pill and they're like I just had a turkey dinner. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, yeah. I mean, it, it, the infuriating part about this to me is kind of like what I had mentioned already is the the global food issue that we have, um, and like Doug said, food production is not an issue, and yet many, many millions of people are still starving. And this is completely unnecessary. I mean, it's it's literally completely at the choice of the people at the top uh, to not get food to people that need it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's infuriating. And in, you know, on top of it, you know, doing all of these uh, pushes and efforts to, to make new types of frankenfoods, it's like you're just putting your energy in the in the complete wrong place. Yeah. There was an interesting article um, from June of this year um, called uh, Lamb Genetically Modified with Jellyfish Sold as Meat by Paris Butcher. And it uh, basically goes into into details here. It says French authorities are looking into how a lamb genetically modified with jellyfish protein was sold as meat to an unknown customer. Um, a, ju- a judicial judicial source told AFP on Tuesday. Um, the jellyfish lamb called Rubis was sent to an abattoir from the National Institute of Agriculture Research in Paris late last year and somehow ended up on a butcher's slab. So, <laughs> you know, this is this is just unbelievable because, first of all, I had never even heard of this lamb spliced with jellyfish genes. Um, and, you know, they they obviously didn't have uh, the proper uh, safety protocols in place to uh, ensure that this didn't uh, end up actually in the food chain. And uh, so it ended up on somebody's plate. So somebody in Paris, you know, went out, bought their lamb like they normally would, and uh, ended up with uh, genetically modified lamb and uh, were eating a combo jellyfish uh, lamb for dinner. So, yeah, I mean... It, it, it just it's so infuriating because it again it just kind of it makes you feel so powerless you know who knows what you're getting when you go to a butcher shop you know you take as many precautions as you possibly can um you could talk to your butcher about where this is coming from but you know even the butcher didn't know at that point so it's it's so uh it's just so frustrating that you know no matter how much you try to protect yourself there's still things happening where you can't, you know? It just it uh, makes me so angry. It's so weird because France, you know, banned GMOs. It's like, and jellyfish with lamb, it's just, 
I never heard of that before. <laughs> no, I know. Well, and this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I recently was just looking back through the science and technology section on the SOT page, and back in 2011, the Daily Telegraph, which is a pretty well-read organization, there was an article, Genetically Modified Cows Produce Human Milk, and scientists have successfully introduced human genes into 300 dairy cows to produce milk with the same properties as human breast milk. Mm-hmm. And scientists behind the research believe milk from herds of genetically modified cows could provide an alternative to human breast milk and formula milk for babies. Jeez. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, yeah, let's try it out in our babies because that's safe, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unbelievable. And they're hoping to get that on store shelves. You know, if it I, isn't just, already, you know. I mean, that's what's <laughs> that's, really frightening. <laughs> oh, sorry, that, by the way, yeah. you've been drinking this for the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, I think we, we can see that, you know, we're just generally introducing more uh Often, you know, starkly negative and also potentially negative variables uh, into the health situation around the planet. Um, you know, and we've talked about this before uh, in, in different contexts. But you've already got—I mean, first of all, processed foods; those are, you know, dangerous at the very least, anyway, because your body is not getting optimal nutrition, and you're getting things like hydrogenated oils, which are like plastic, and it's building up in your system. Then you've got, like, pollution, you've got, you know, radiation, um, you've got EMF pollution, uh, you've got all of these things that are detracting uh, from anyone's ability to be healthy. Um, we see the explosion of the cancer epidemic, diabetes, you know, a lot of these modern, they're so-called kind of modern diseases. Um, they're just, they just keep introducing more factors that are going to shorten the lifespan. Um, you know, and I guess you could go kind of conspiratorial about it and talk about, the, you know, population control is just kind of like part of that. Um, I don't know. I, I guess when I think about it, I, I think it's just kind of, um, you know, what I would call pseudoscience gone amok. Uh, yeah. You know, just misdirection, misdirection of energies. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's it's aggravating too. Because, uh, you know, a lot of, one of the arguments you hear from pro-GMO advocates is that, uh, well, this has, this has been, you know, in the food chain, and talking about crops specifically, you know, this, this has been in the food chain for, for you know, decades now, and, and I don't see any negative effects. But, of course, it's like, where are you looking? Where are you actually, you know, looking for these negative effects? Uh, you know, we do see these explosions in all these different uh, chronic health conditions. Um, you know, as Jonathan was just saying. So, you, you know, it, 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 but nobody's making that correlation. Like, it's, it's almost like if nobody drops dead immediately after eating GMOs, then they, they assume that it's safe. And all these kind of chronic health conditions that are, that are blowing up right now, nobody's making that connection and nobody's looking. Nobody's actually doing these investigations. So you see the same thing with the GMO salmon. It's like they test a couple of fish and say, no, it's safe. Well, we don't know that it's safe because nobody's actually looking um, because, you know, these things are, are rushed through because there's the financial um, interests involved 
And as long as everybody's making their money, they're happy with it. And they can turn around and say, no, look, we've had this, uh, this out there for decades and there's no problem. Well, that's, that's bullshit because nobody is, is actually trying to make these connections. There's nobody out there who is actually doing these like kind of um, long-term studies. And how could you really? Because there's way too many confounding factors at this point. Once it's released to the public and everybody's eating it, you, you know, there's too many confounding factors. How do you know if you, you know, they're not labeled. So how do you know that you've um, been eating these genetically modified foods? There's no way to control for that. You can't say, well, this segment who's been eating GMOs came with these conditions and this segment of the population who hasn't been eating GMOs is fine. You can't do that because GMOs are everywhere. And even if people are making efforts to avoid them, there's all this cross-contamination. Um, you know, you're, we're feeding it to cattle now. So that means that you're getting exposed through um, meat that you're eating, even if you are avoiding these crops. So it's not possible to do these kinds of tests and to actually know for sure whether you're getting any kind of direct um, effect from eating these things. So it's just, it, it's so, uh, it's so frustrating because there's just no way to know. And, you know, because there's no way to know, they, they use that to their advantage because they can say, well, you know, there's no definitive answer that these things are bad. You know, forget the, um, you know, safety protocols. Um, just, you know, if, if, if I don't see anything immediately in front of my face, then, then I can deny it. So, yeah, it, it, it's very frustrating. Well, it overwhelms consumer to the point where you know they become insane you know like we talked about in our show last week like trying to stay sane in an insane world you know mm. I, i've been following this gmo thing for years and there was days where i felt like i just couldn't even read another lie about how yeah. oh it's safe oh it doesn't have any side effects oh it's just and you know one thing i have noted over the last seven years is there are scientists coming out like Stephanie Seneff from MIT talking about, you know, the the connection between glyphosate and, and Roundup and uh, the rise in celiac disease and, you know, books mm -hmm. are coming out. Even Jane Goodall came out against, you know, GMOs. And so I think there is awareness growing, but I think what happens is people, you know, some it's something you got to do three times a day and you have to go to the grocery store and you have to, you know, oh, I won't buy natural. Oh, I got to look for this. It becomes so overwhelming that people mm -hmm. just shut down and they're like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to, you know, and especially if you're on a very limited budget or you have food stamps, it's like the, the whole process of going to the grocery store is so stressful that you're just like, Forget about it. I'm just going to buy what's on the shelf and try and do the best I can. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like it's putting the burden. You know, it's, it's such an unnatural food environment. Right. Like, you know, back in the day, you could trust that everything, you know, when you went to the store to buy whatever, you know, you went to your butcher to get some pork or something. It was pork. You do. You know, you could go there, you could get it, you take it home, you cook it, that's fine. You know, you're getting exactly what you want. Now, you go into a grocery store, and what is it, 90% of the stuff in there is basically inedible? You know, the idea that a person has to, you know, have this, this harsh kind of critical thinking in mind and, like, really be, uh, you know, aware, read their ingredients labels diligently, um, it's putting so much burden on the consumer, that, yeah, I don't blame people for just deciding that they're not going to worry about it. You know, they've got too many other problems in their life 
that this is something where they're just going to let things slide because how can, how can they do otherwise? You know, it, it, what are you going to take three hours to go grocery shopping because you have to read every single ingredient? You know, I mean, it's, it's just, I, I, I really feel sorry for the public who isn't as well informed as, as we are or as, as other people out there who are, are diligent about these sorts of things. You know? But that's how they break people more effectively through their health. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have good health. You cannot deal with anything else for that matter. So it's really very sad to see how, you know, most people just throw the towel, you know, basically when it comes mm-hmm. to, like, eating themselves. And it's just it's very sad. Yeah, and it's like a negative loop too, right? Because the more of this bad food they eat, the less they're able to actually critically think about these sorts of things. You know, the more you're loading yourself up with unhealthy food, the less efficient your brain is and the rest of your body too. The more tired you are, the less like energy you have to think about these sorts of things. So it, it's it's like this negative feedback loop, and the you know the more um, the more you eat of this stuff, the less able you are to discern. I agree, and like Jonathan mentioned, you know, put on the tinfoil hat, like, oh, are they just trying to kill us all? I think it's much more insidious. I think, like Gabby mentioned, it's just breaking you down, making you more and more sick, and then you turn to big pharma, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they make a profit I, off of it. I I I see what you're saying, and I think it is it is easy to kind of look at at, at things. Well, I shouldn't say easy, but I, I can see why um, people would look at it in that way. But I honestly just wonder if it's just a side effect of of having psychopaths at the top, you know, that uh, yeah. you know a side effect of kind of turning off your critical thinking is that you come down with these illnesses and things and and are unable to critically think. It's like you've made a choice, and that choice has these negative consequences. I always have trouble believing that there's some kind of master plan, overarching, you know, population control, all that sort of thing. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there were people at the top who had those sorts of ideas, but the the, the level of control that they would actually need, I think it's just psychopaths run amok. You know, it's just people, you know, they seek out positions of power and they do everything they can to get, to kind of feed off the population by like funneling all the money upward. And, you know, something comes across their desk that's like, oh, we could uh, increase our profits by 400% by doing that. So they do. And they ignore any possible consequences to the public. I don't even know if they're capable of looking at the consequences. So that, that it just kind of runs downhill from there. I, I think of it as just kind of like, like I said, kind of a side effect of having these psychopaths in power. And I think there is yeah, I think in a sense, like, like we're sounding very pessimistic, but I think that, you know, it's just like Jonathan said on the last show of doing the work, you know, and mm. uh, sharing, you know, with every people on an individual basis where we report relationships with your local community. Like, you can really be, <clears throat> you can really be an example, like, you know, mm, I think it's hard to say that most of us living through these psychopathic environments, you know, have very mm. poor, poor health at some point or another, and if you're, you know, the example for others, how you recover your health, what are you doing, and you start sharing with people, they get interested, you know, it can really help a lot of folks, you know. Yeah, I think I think communities is a, is, is a very important aspect of it. And, you know, even um, just uh, here, I actually uh, participate in, in kind of a, 
um, food buying program where we go kind of direct a farmer, um, can talk to the farmer, see, you know, how, how the animals are raised, um, you know, see that it's ethical, that it's clean, that sort of thing. And we, we go in on shares, you know, so you buy a whole cow and you divide it up amongst uh, many people. Um, and that, that's just a way that kind of you can work with your kind of local community and try and like kind of separate yourself from the system, you know, the system mm-hmm. that's out there and not have to rely on, you know, grocery stores where you have absolutely no idea where, where things are coming from. So that, that's, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that the, uh, the, uh, the community aspect is very important. Yeah, Gabby, when you said, you know, is there hope, uh, there, there's not a ton of it. <laughs> um, but I think that, uh, I think hope can be found in that, uh, small community kind of setup, you know, where you establish, um, you know, means of sharing, means of communication, um, and you have a support network that helps for the, the hope side of things. Uh, because, you know, if we were relying on, Fox News, MSNBC, and the people who rule this planet, then no. I, I think there would be very little hope, unfortunately. Okay, so you we've know, actually got a caller here. Oh, sorry, Jonathan, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. Yeah. Not at um, all. Go ahead. So we have uh, Lynn from Massachusetts on the line. Go ahead, Lynn. Hi, all. Uh, I want to come to back to something Doug said about the... Uh, uh, this is all about profit, and they don't really realize what they're doing. I kind of agree with that, that maybe in the beginning this is all about profit, because that's what those in control are all about, is profit. But I think that once things got rolling, they began to see how certain things started reacting. Like you have Big Pharma giving all these medicines, and these medicines made people have to take more medicines. And then they saw mm-hmm. big food creating all this sickness, and it was all done for profit. But they're always looking for profit. So they see that this food causes bad health, which makes the big pharma able to sell more more product. So I think mm-hmm. it it is all about profit, but I do think that some of them are able to realize the connections with the bad health and how they're able to just keep on making more profit. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I could no, be I, wrong. I, I, but you could be right, too. Um, it, it's, it's certainly a possibility. Um, and, you know, I can, I can see that they could kind of, like, you know, draw these connections and realize that, uh, that this, is, this is working out to be very profitable for them so they continue. Um, yeah, I don't think that's really a normal possibility. Yeah, exactly. It's still all about profit, and they could care less about people's health. But what, whatever way they can make more money, they're going to do it. But anyway, that's all I have to say. Thanks for calling, great. Lynn. Yeah, yeah you, guys are doing, you guys are doing great. I really appreciate all your shows, and I'm really looking forward to the iodine one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll hopefully get to that very soon, yeah. Yeah. You all take care. Bye-bye. You too, Lynn. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lynn. Bye. Yeah, I think that was a pretty good point. I mean, um, Doug, I I tend to agree with with what you said, um, you know, that it's just kind of run amok. Uh, And, you know, there there are, at the same time, there are some people 
who are, are in positions of power that may be able to see what's going on and kind of jockey for uh, a better position as far as taking advantage of these this negative feedback loop. I mean, the FDA is the Food and Drug Administration. So they approve food and they approve drugs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's. I don't think it's news to anybody that uh, with billions of dollars you can buy decisions in government. That happens all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess I, where I kind of what stops me up is when you get the kind of Alex Jones type mentality where it's it's all about population control and they want to sterilize people and they want to like reduce the population all kind of stuff. I I, I find it questionable that that these people who are are profiting off of. Um, you know, people at the bottom of the pyramid kind of thing want to reduce the population of the people at the bottom of the pyramid because that's that that right there is kind of cutting off their energy source, right? So that I, I think that's where I kind of like and I, I really question that whole thing. Um, you know, how much sense does it make for them to want to kill off uh, part of the population when that's their food source? It it just doesn't sure. really make sense to me on that level. But the idea that, um, you know, they, they realize that uh, they can increase their profits by, by keeping on doing what they're doing, I could totally buy that. Yeah, that was the point that I was feeling as well, you know, that it's it just seems so intertwined and goes all the mm-hmm. way to the top. I mean, I like to refer it to the, the FDA as the Federal Death Association, you know. <laughs> yeah. both, both ends of the market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're uh, we're kind of approaching our, our time here, so let's go to the uh, the pet health segment for today, if you guys are cool with that. Um, yeah, sounds good. Zoya, Zoya has a segment for us about bloodletting. It sounds like that should be pretty interesting. Uh, and then when we come back, we will wrap up and have a um, a recipe today for ham bone soup. So we'll talk non-GMO hairbone soup. Yeah, non-enviro pig soup. <laughs> All right, so here's Zoya, and we will be back uh, shortly. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya. And today I'm going to share with you an interesting old newspaper article I stumbled upon about the benefits of bloodletting in animals. This topic has interested me for quite a while now. It's considered to be an archaic practice, but nowadays it gains a new momentum as the best therapy in cases of hemochromatosis and other ailments in humans. But what about animals? I'm sure that many veterinarians would roll their eyes and say that the idea of bloodletting in pets is crazy and outrageous, but the fact is that it does help, and sometimes can be the only available thing that can save life in case of an emergency. For example, my friend, a fellow student, during her practice, saved the life of a calf uh, this way when he had a case of pulmonary edema, and there was no medication on hand and no time to bring any. I'm also reminded of a wonderful story by James Harriet about a pony with painful laminitis being miraculously healed by bloodletting. Indeed, during our therapy classes, internal diseases classes, we were told that some conditions such as pulmonary edema, overheating, and uh, rheumatism in horses can be treated by bloodletting. And how much blood? 
Well, a half percent and up to one percent of the body mass. For horses, it can mean even up to five, six liters. Yep. So the article I found was first published in the Sydney Mail on 20th of May 1871. Interestingly enough, the information seems to be valid even now. Good thing to remember in case of an emergency. So here goes the article. During the last 30 or 40 years, this operation has been greatly on the decline. Uh, the article uh, talks about bloodletting. Formerly, it was the custom to open a vein for the most uh, trifling ailments and sometimes for nothing. Horses were bled because they were going to be turned out to grass. They were bled because they were turned uh, because they were just uh, being taken from grass. They were bled because it was the spring or the fall of the year. Horses and cattle too were often bled because some disease to which they were liable was then more prevalent than usual. The human subject did not escape the rage for bleeding. Men in perfect health were bled periodically to keep them in health. They were often bled for maladies which can be cured without bloodletting and they were often bled for maladies which are aggravated by loss of blood. The annals of medical science show that many lives have been sacrificed by injudicious use of the lancet. Compared with former times, there are now few ailments in which bloodletting is resorted to. And it may be that the tendency at present is to undervalue than, rather than to overvalue the remedy. But it is too obviously useful to go out of fashion altogether. Venice section of phlebotomy are synonymous with bloodletting. The immediate object of the operation is depletion, and depletion is either local or general. It is local when uh, limited to a part, say, a foot, an eye, or a tumor infection. To produce local depletion, the blood is drawn from the part affected or as near to it as possible. For inflammation in the foot or leg, a blood vessel is opened in the foot or leg. The medical practitioner sometimes employs leeches or cupping for the same purpose. If the local depletion be beneficial, the inflammation subsides. The part becomes cooler, less painful, less tender, and when there are redness and tumor infection, they decrease. In a, in a great many cases of inflammation, especially those arising from blows, wounds, strain or twist, the same beneficial results may be obtained, though perhaps not so quickly without depletion. In some, the continuous application of cold or iced water, with or without bandages, and in other, uh, fomentation or poultices will reduce the inflammation. The veterinarian alone can determine when local depletion is requisite, either as a principle or as an auxiliary remedy. And in doubtful cases, it is best to leave the bloodletting to him. General depletion is affected by opening a large vein. In most domestic animals, the jugular is preferred as most convenient. It lies alongside the windpipe on each side. The opening should be made three or four inches below the point where it sends off a branch to the lower jaw. To close the vein, the edges are drawn together, a pin runs through both, and a little toe of or hair wound between the skin and the pin. The pin should not pass through the whole thickness of the skin, 
for it uh, does the edges uh, will pucker and be less likely to unite. The pin should be left till it comes away of itself. After a large bleeding, the horse should not be tied up to a hay rack, lest uh, he faint, in which case he will be likely to hang himself. Neither should he be turned out to graze on the same day. While his head is down, the vein is distended and the edges of the opening parted. When the horse has to be bled again, it is best to open the other vein. To produce a decided effect by general depletion, the blood should be obstructed quickly and in large quantity. The opening should be large enough to let the blood flow freely. And in the horse or ox, six quarts is about the usual quantity. But less than uh, that is sufficient if the patient exhibits any sign of faintness by staggering as if giddy. Fat horses or cattle uh, do not bear the loss of blood so well as in animals in constant hard work. They do not contain so much. The general depletion is beneficial in mostly all cases of external congestion or inflammation. For that congesting of the lungs, which sometimes follows racing or hunting, there is no remedy so efficacious as a copious bleeding. But it is also efficacious for the congestion or inflammation of any important organ. It not only relieves the organ overloaded with blood, but it moderates the morbid action. It reduces the temperature of the body, weakens all the vital forces, and if it does not arrest, it at least retards the morbid process. It is resorted to when the skin is hot, the eye red, the pulse full and strong. But it is forbidden when the excitement is on the decline and all vital energy is required to repair injury or to recover loss. Well, that's the article. And I hope that you are similarly fascinated with what was written in 1871. So the same purpose probably can be applied for smaller pet animals as well. Just remember the principle of half percent up to one percent of body mass and just pay attention if the animal is anemic, better uh, not to do it. But in some situations, as I said, pulmonary edema, uh, sometimes it's the best uh, emergency case solution if you don't have anything on hand and uh, if a veterinarian can get to your pet as soon as possible. Well. This is it for today. I hope that you found the information useful. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Some well, new animals. We got new goats. Yeah. <laughs> that was a crazy one. Well, thanks, Leia. That was a that was pretty enlightening. Um I guess you know I'm, I must confess that I've, I've generally thought of bloodletting as sort of an antiquated practice, um, but I have heard about it uh, in relation to like hemochromatosis and things. But very interesting that it would be useful in a uh, in a veterinary situation. Mm. Well, let's see here. Uh, so we're approaching the end of our show, and I have a, a recipe here today for a ham bone soup. Uh, again, please use non enviro pig. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
there there are ways to uh, to find uh, good pork. Um, I mean, you know, if you have like a, a health food store or a co-op or something in your area, go ask them about it. Um, also, I believe that U.S. Wellness Meats is a a pretty good company where you can order um, different kinds of uh, you know grass-fed, pasture-raised animals. Um, so let's get into this here. Uh, we've got for ingredients. Uh, two tablespoons of lard, one onion <clears throat> diced in a, a half-inch segments, uh, two carrots, also diced, uh, two parsnips, also diced, two cloves of garlic, minced, one meaty ham bone, about two pounds, two bay leaves, one teaspoon of chopped fresh sage, one teaspoon of fresh tarragon, also chopped, one-half teaspoon of salt, one quarter teaspoon of white pepper and six cups of pork stock. Um, now there's a number of ways to make your own pork stock. Um, I recommend checking out uh, the book with, that we've referenced quite a bit, Nourishing Traditions by Sally Allen. Um, there's a lot of good stock recipes in there. Uh, so the, uh, the process for this is in a large stock pot, melt the lard over medium heat, add the onion, carrots, parsnips, beets, and garlic, and saute until they're soft give or take seven minutes. Um, add the ham bone, bay leaves, sage, tarragon, salt, white pepper, and pork stock, and bring the soup to a boil over high heat. Uh, once it's boiling, reduce the heat to low and cover. Simmer for about three hours uh, until the remaining meat from the bone is, is falling off, falling off the ham bone. Uh, and then shred the remaining meat into the soup, uh, remove the bone and bay leaves, and serve. That's ham bone mm-hmm. soup. And it's pretty good. Sounds and good. I would also rec- recommend uh, hang on to your uh, bones. And you can always, uh, I mean, you can you can use, obviously, fresh bones to make bone broth, but you can also re- reprocess bones uh, just to kind of get any of the remaining uh, nutrients out of them and just throw them in the crock pot. And maybe we'll do the uh, kind of detailed bone broth recipe next week. I should bone oh. Sounds What's excellent. That? Yeah, I really like the, uh, the the especially the meat that comes off of the the ham bones. It's quite mm. good. Yeah, so tender. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's our uh, that's our show for today. So we hope that everyone will uh, be aware of the situation with frankenfoods that we have talked about. You know, keep an eye out when you're shopping for food. Uh, stay informed and. Um, don't be afraid to uh, to ask people, you know, what the what the situation is. If you're in a restaurant, ask them what they're serving. If you're in a uh, grocery store, you know, talk to the manager and say, where do you get this stuff? And just make sure that you stay mm-hmm. informed about what's going into your body. Um, so uh, we'd like to thank our chat participants for, uh, for being in the chat room here today uh, and our caller. Uh, thank you very much for calling in. Um, make sure to ter- tune into the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, uh, The Truth Perspective, uh, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern, and Behind the Headlines all- on Sunday, also at 2 p.m. Eastern. Always uh, really good shows there um, with uh, good topics covered in depth. And we will be back uh, next week on Friday. So hope that everybody has a great weekend and a good week, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.